the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There's no question that Americans are more skeptical today about big government than they have been in the past. But one murkier question is why? Certainly liberals would point to Republican resistance and the strange conundrum presented by moderates. But a new book suggests that liberals themselves have helped sow real doubt in the power of legislation by subjecting it to unnecessary bureaucracy and legal challenge. We'll talk with author and Yale history professor Paul Sabin next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills. Educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Before we get into the show today, I want to say something about yesterday and yesterday's show. We have an update from what we were talking about yesterday, which was the city of Auburn Hills considering the idea that they might opt out of the smart bus service and what that would mean for our larger transit picture here in southeast Michigan. Last night, indeed, the Auburn Hills City Council voted 5-2 to two in favor of opting out of the suburban bus system. It also approved ballot language to ask voters if they want to pay 0.5 mills to create a city-run transportation system exclusively for seniors and adults with disabilities. I, I think anybody who lives in this region who's paid attention to our struggles with transit over the last 40 years has to mark this as a setback. Uh, the idea that a city as big as Auburn Hills and with as many big employers as Auburn Hills will not have public transit um, is going to be a real challenge to people trying to get around. And that is something that we just have not figured out very well here in southeast Michigan. So the story, of course, is not over. The saga continues. We still have the Regional Transit Authority, which, um, if it were funded, would would fill a lot of the holes in, in public transit and make things much better for people who rely on that to, to, to get around. So uh, we, we have to move on and, and start thinking bigger about the solutions to this massive regional problem. Okay, so if you think about liberal legislation and liberal aspirations for legislation, I think you would not be mistaken to associate that with big things, big pieces of legislation that liberals themselves would say improve our well-being. They want legislation to bring immediate assistance to individuals and families, reducing a range of inequalities that persist in American life. And it ranges from family and parental leave policies to universal pre-K and universal health care plans, expansion of the child tax credit, decarcerating our country, creating more housing and housing first policies, and maybe most notably in the last few years, passing the Green New Deal, a massive piece of uh, legislation that would really reform the way we use natural resources and the way that uh, we preserve the environment. So that last policy package would ostensibly put more money in everyone's pockets by investing in greener technology and public spaces to both create jobs and stabilize an increasingly chaotic environment. But these big packages that harken back to the days of big liberalism in the 1960s and in the 1930s and 40s, they just don't have much of a chance. Every time they come up for votes, we have some reason in Congress that they can't get passed. And every time that political process stalls, Liberals point in the direction of Republicans, of course, who see government as performing a really different uh, function in our society. And increasingly, they are pointing at 
moderate Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, who often uh, votes pretty conservatively. Um, the, 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 the collective idea here is that someone other than liberals themselves is responsible for the failure to get these things passed. But what about liberals themselves? What about these liberal policies and the history of liberal legislation? Have they also helped create distrust in government, making it harder, in fact, to pass big legislative packages now and in the future? This is exactly the argument that Yale professor Paul Sabin makes in his new book, Public Citizens. He says that with the 1960s public interest advocate Ralph Nader leading the charge, a class of nonprofit public interest professionals, most of them white men, by the way, made it easier for people to sue lawmakers. They opened the government up to more criticism and created a slow-moving political process which lowers the chances of passing broad legislative packages that Americans often, when you ask them about it, they say, hey, that seems like a good idea. But how true is this argument that uh, Sabin is making? How much blame should liberals shoulder for creating a slower, more distrustful political process? And if it is true, how should liberals go about reinstilling trust in government officials and giving them room to innovate and pass expansive societal changing legislation. That is where we begin the conversation today. How do we get to a place where more people do trust in government, more people do trust in government uh, programs and legislation to actually improve the lives of Americans. And with us to talk about that is the author of Public Citizens, Paul Sabin, who is a professor of history at Yale. Paul Sabin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me uh, on the show. So uh, this idea is really an intriguing one. And I think it's it's a call maybe to introspection, I suppose, would be the right way. That, yeah, I think that's right. The that's right, right way to think about it. Rather than getting angry about Republicans, and, and no question, Republicans have done a lot in the last 50 years, especially to sow the idea that government can't be trusted, uh, or to point the finger at Democrats who don't lean quite as far left or don't or don't believe as strongly in uh, the power of government, uh, you're, you're kind of calling on uh, liberals or progressives to think about the effect of the things uh, that we've done ourselves, that, that we've done to ourselves, perhaps, uh, to to help make it harder for people to believe in in government. And and you focus on Ralph Nader, which is a, a, a name that we haven't heard in American politics too much lately, but but at one time was somebody who had a pretty powerful voice. Let's start there. Why is Ralph Nader and his story so important to what you're talking about? Well, I, I, so, well, first, just thanks again for having me on. And, and I should be clear that I think a lot of anger is, uh, is justified uh, towards many of the uh, things that are being uh, undertaken by, by, by the right uh, in American democracy right now. Um, but I do support the ideas of introspection. I guess I come from as a studying history, you can learn from the complexity. And so what, why Nader? I mean, I think Nader is a, is a great character uh, and was trying to find someone in writing this book that could uh, allow an exploration of sort of the evolution of liberal uh, and uh, public interest politics going back to the 1960s. And uh, Nader both shows some of the height of that of, of that politics, the passage of uh, many of the crucial laws of the early 1970s, including the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, uh, and other crucial pieces of legislation. Uh, but then he also, in some ways, you know, shows the lows, I think, of that uh, in the 2000 election. Um, it, it, you know, when he kind of went went outside as a as an independent and. Uh, uh, Kind of taking on, uh, you know, criticizing Gore and, and kind of pursuing an alternative. And I, I don't want to go too far down into the 2000 election rehash, but um, but I think it was it was emblematic of the ambivalence of uh, people like uh, Nader towards um, sort of the traditional uh, democratic politics and uh, uh, that has had lasting consequences. So he, he's a fascinating character. 
again the high highs and highs and lows of uh, of much of the story i think to to be explored and and much of what ralph nader is saying during this this time period is hey the, you know the government isn't always looking out for you uh, the the little guy so to so to speak we need ways to to put checks on government that will make sure that the things that they're doing actually uh, actually benefit the, the 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 small person and of course i think here in detroit um you know we don't have to think very hard to come up with the the, the biggest example of that which is his influence over safety in in the auto industry uh, I mean, right. he, he really did encourage the idea that, that the government was not protecting passengers uh, with, with the regulations. It was, it was protecting corporate interest. And, and we changed all of that. I mean, the, 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 the environment of, of auto regulation is fundamentally different today, largely because of what Ralph Nader did. Now, Ralph Nader yeah. would say, and I don't want to, I don't, want to speak for him, but I, but I don't think he would object to this. I mean, he would say, look, that was an important change. That was an important shift. And people were being killed before uh, all of this by recklessness in the industry and, and government indifference. You say, though, that in addition to that, it, it, it makes well, well, it easier to, yeah, go ahead. It makes it easier to question. Well, no, I mean, I, I think that you, you, you get to really the point, uh, you know, the heart, heart of the point that I'm making in the book, which is uh, both recognizing the real problems that uh, people like Nader were, uh, were attacking and, and trying to uh, rectify, uh, and then trying to understand sort of the uh, uh, unintended consequences of some of those uh, reforms. So, so I, I you know, strongly agree with your point. Um, that uh, that these were real problems, and so part of what so so really you know the heart of my book goes from really 1965 when Nader comes out with his book on safer than any speed to the election of Ronald Reagan. That's really trying to explain how you know, how did we go from the height of big new deal, big big liberalism of uh, of the Great Society to to the Reagan era, um, and to show some of the ways that people like Nader uh, played a part in that. Um, and I think you're right to point to. You know, one of Nader's innovations uh, as a as a political figure was to uh, argue uh, that the government was sort of in partnership. Big government was in partnership with uh, with the companies, with you know, with with uh, um, with companies uh, against the citizens. Uh, and so, auto safety was his, was one example, but that was also true uh, in environmental regulation and uh, you know, workplace safety uh, and other uh, other places. Um, and so that that was a real issue. And so part of the argument that I'm making is that these liberals, uh, you know, were attacking uh, 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 an administrative state that had you know, there were real real problems with how it was operating. And uh, these were real legitimate uh, critiques. And you only have to look, uh, you know, at um, things uh, like uh, you know nuclear testing in the atmosphere, or you know the spraying of DDT and the near extinction of the bald eagle, and uh, you know, the Vietnam War as a whole, uh, and and many of the fights over over civil rights, to see that the you know, that the government uh, was playing complicated roles, and there was a real place for these outsiders uh, criticizing the government and saying that it had to do more that, that and that it couldn't be trusted because you take something like the Vietnam War, the government you know was lying you know, to, the, to the people, <laughs> and uh, and so you know that's the justification for the critique. The question is like. When you create institutions to respond to that critique, what are some of the consequences uh, of those institutions, and do they then accomplish the ends uh, that are ultimately were you know were desired? Yeah. So, so when you talk about these institutions that were created, I think they fall into a couple of categories. One, of course, is uh, bureaucracy process, the slowing down of the making of law, and the and the you know increasing order of difficulty. Uh, that now attends, especially l broad and and sweeping uh, legislation. Talk about the things that 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 changed that made it harder, just made it harder to get. Well, big I, mean, legislation I, yeah, I mean, I think passed. that one of the uh, one of the important uh, critiques was the sense that there was an unrep there were unrepresented groups in society. Uh, that you know that that labor, uh, business, and government—you know—those are the sort of the three pillars of the New Deal, post-New Deal state. Um, that they weren't really being included. That—that that was what Nader talked about as the citizens. That's and that's the title of the book. Public citizens is both the, related to an organization he founded, but really it was a, the idea that the citizen represented you know interests that weren't being heard. Uh, so some of these processes include the involvement of. 
loosely organized or, or differently organized citizens in the in the administrative uh, process. Um, and I think again, it's it's, it's a it's a sort of a two-edged uh, sword. On the one hand. Uh, there are things that were happening in the 60s, like highways being, you know, blasted through neighborhoods uh, uh, that citizens then rose up in the freeway revolts, you know, to try to try to block those things. Uh, and that was a really important uh, political uh, action, uh, both for, civil, you know, re- uh, for a variety of different environmental and civil rights. Um, at the same time, now you can see struggles to build housing, to build uh, energy transmission lines. Uh, just just this last week. Some people may have followed a, a fight in, in, in Berkeley, California, uh, over whether, to, um, uh, whether, whether the university should be allowed to expand its enrollment. Uh, and there was a lawsuit under the California Environmental Quality Act uh, saying that, you know, that, that this needs to be reviewed more carefully to understand the impact of more students on the, on the quality of life uh, in, in the city. And, and they were going to cut slash enrollment at the university. Uh, in order to you know, respond to this lawsuit, uh, and so that I think is you know housing is one interesting example where uh, um, where the empowerment of the citizen uh, is is leading to the blocking of this public good, yeah. uh, the construction of additional housing, and a similar story can be told around uh, renewable energy uh, infrastructure. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Yale history professor Paul Sabin about his book, Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and tell us, how much do you trust government to pass big legislation uh, that will change the nature of American life. Uh, what did you think of things like the New Deal or the Great Society, uh, former big pieces of legislation that were intended to really improve American lives? Do you think we live in a different era where we can't trust government as much or shouldn't or should rely more on the, pu- the private sector? Uh, to improve lives, wages, and things like that. Uh, Give us a call and let us know if you think we should make it easier to pass big legislation like the Green New Deal or think back to health care reform at the end of the 2000s. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, Facebook or Twitter. Put comments there and we'll work into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is... Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Paul Sabin. He's a professor of history at Yale and the author of a book called Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. In that book, he kind of poses a really important question about uh, well-intentioned efforts uh, by liberals or progressives or whatever label you want to put on them uh, to change and improve American life and whether those efforts themselves and some attendant activity are actually the reason, or part of the reason at least, that Americans are so skeptical today about the idea of big government legislation or programs. Uh, we want to hear from you as well on the phones. Uh, what do you think about the government? What do you think about big pieces of legislation like the Green New Deal? Is that the right way to solve our problems? Uh, are the people who stand in the way of those things uh, the problem? Or are are the ideas themselves uh, kind of self-defeating uh, because they invoke images of 
failure and bureaucracy that just turn people off. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Before we get to listeners, Paul, I do want to talk about some of the other challenges you say that that uh, have developed to this kind of legislation. And one of them is the, the, the legal environment, this idea that if you don't like what the government is doing, if you don't like uh, a piece of legislation, you can you can go to court to try to halt its its implementation. And uh, we see much more of that now than we used to in a, in American society. You say this is one of the things that liberals like Ralph Nader also uh, pushed uh, for a long time to be able to empower citizens, but it does have this opposite effect as well. Well, I mean, I think it is you know, it is a complicated uh, story, and I think the an example of that is the passage of the uh, National Environmental Policy Act uh, that was signed by Nixon in uh, at the beginning of, in, in 1970, mm-hmm. uh, and and that law uh, led to uh, environmental reviews of major federal actions, uh, and I think that it's. Uh, so and and litigation under that has uh, you know, s- s- uh, blocks, uh, stalls, slows, righted from kinds of projects, and you can see that both as uh, continued necessity uh, because the government uh, often uh, promotes or endorses uh, advances uh, projects that might be bad ideas. In, in my view, something like some of the you know, major uh, pipelines or the uh, uh, coal uh, coal projects, uh, other types of things. You know, if you're concerned about climate change, uh, NEPA is a major tool. Uh, to try to get the government to reconsider uh, its plans for uh, extracting uh, energy resources. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, as, as I was mentioning uh, before the break, uh, you know, th- these kinds of environmental review laws also uh, are being used to block uh, affordable housing, um, you know, new energy transmission lines that are, you know, might bring uh, hydroelectric power from Canada that is, you know, green, uh, you know, green energy under the, uh, for climate purposes. Uh, and so it's really, I, so I, th- I think what's important to recognize is this dil- dilemma of, uh, you know, the need for uh, review, uh, environmental review. If you don't have environmental review, there are going to be a lot of terrible projects. Um, but there has to be some way to um, maybe streamline or uh, make more effective uh, or more balanced this process so that necessary uh, and worthy projects uh, don't get stalled in- indefinitely. Because you, you were talking actually at the very beginning before, the, before I got on about transportation, mm-hmm. um, but, but this is you know, one of the reasons that, that people say it's so hard for Americans to build uh, you know, mass transit, ra- you know, railroads and, and subways and things like that, are all these delays that are associated with that kind of construction. Uh, and you know, we need these public goods. Uh, so, there's a, so I guess what I'm uh, you know, pointing at is, is this balance between the need for environmental review. If you go back at the history, it's clear that the government has done you know, terrible environmental things. Uh, uh, at the same time, you know, we need the government to be able to act when, when it has to, to to create these public uh, public goods. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to read a social media comment and go to a call and then get back to our guest. Michael on Twitter writes, Citizens United and related ramifications seem extremely important for context. Doesn't that result in the undermining faith for government to act in the interest of real people? Uh, let's go to David in St. Clair Shores, who has uh, a similar a similar point. David, go ahead. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Uh, appreciate the conversation with the professor here. Uh, I guess kind of piggybacking, I suppose, off that tweet there. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing, right? Like, I'm sure that you guys were going to get to this anyway, but private money uh, in the public discourse, I think, is uh, one of the biggest things continuing to proliferate government distrust. And I know that we've kind of hit on, uh, you know, the history here of, you know, how the Republican Party, you know, since, you know, Reagan and Gingrich have really done a magnificent job at uh, creating this environment where people can't trust their government. Mm. Uh, But, you know, we, you know, there's, I feel like that's such a big part of the root cause here. And Democrats, liberals, progressives, whatever label, as you've said, uh, if and when the day comes when we do have, you know, more control in uh, Congress and in the White House, like we have to have the Constitution to act to actually fix mm. that problem. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we have to step up if that day comes. And, you know, obviously there's big money behind Democrats as well. So are we going to forsake that money to do the right thing? Um, um, so yeah. appreciate you guys taking my call. Uh, I really appreciate the call and that perspective, uh, David. Uh, Paul Sabin, talk about money 
and the way it influences politics and policy and whether that is also one of the things that, that makes people skeptical of, uh, of the intent of legislation, I guess. Well, I, th- I think that's right, and, and that goes back to certainly people like uh, Ralph Nader or uh, you know, the group uh, Common Cause, you know, organized back in the in the early '70s. You know, really were trying to attack uh, the role of money in American politics and try to reform campaign uh, finance laws. And that's been just a long, uh, a long struggle uh, there, um, and and cr- really a, a crucial one to try to reduce you know, corporate and elite uh, dominance uh, over the policy process. Um, I mean, I, I guess the things that I would uh, note there that, that I think are interesting just in the context of our broader conversation are, are uh, you know, one is the, uh, the reliance of the legal strategies of the, of the public interest groups uh, on a, a sympathetic court. Uh, and they were enormously successful in the 1970s with a variety of different kinds of uh, litigation. Um, but as the court has turned, uh, that, that success has uh, been more, more challenging. Um, and so... Uh, I think that the, the you know one thing that the, the, the liberal the, the public interest uh, movement hasn't been as successful with is is, is turning to political strategies to accomplish uh, some of uh, these goals. Uh, they've been uh, more, you know, somewhat successful in various places of trying to pass non nonpartisan like redistricting uh, uh, commissions at the state level, uh, but that highlights another uh, sort of irony and complexity. Um, where you do sort of state-by-state solutions to something that's actually a, a national problem, uh, and that then leads to a, uh, a distortion of the uh, political uh, playing, playing field um, that is uh, causing kind of unintended uh, consequences. Um, so I guess, I guess, you know, I, I, I think it's really important to, you know, we can talk more about, you know, the role of money, uh, and that is, uh, you know, part of the effort by people like Nader to lift up citizen voices is to try to counter uh, counter uh, counter money and uh, and special special interest influence. Yeah, yeah. Again, Dave, uh, thank you very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Mike in Chesterfield. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey there, Stephen. Hope hey. everything's all good. Good. Happy two 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 Tuesday. Yes. Uh, the um, the thing I wanted to talk about, and actually, I just added the professor's book to my uh, Goodreads want to read section. So there's that. Um, <laughs> It's interesting. Um, the thing I wanted to say, though, is uh, I, I think the main issue going on with uh, just government in general in the entire society is what are the priorities of government? What are and I say that at each level of government because I try and be involved in local, state, and federal uh, issues, and it seems that there's no real mission statement for each level anymore. That people just expect. And I guess this is coming from a citizen's expectation that government, they oftentimes just think immediately to D.C., and then they just expect, oh, the government's going to do this, so I don't have to do anything. Hmm. And so you have this real disconnect between actual citizenry and what uh, the functions of government can be. And I cite this as something like you look back to the end of uh, World War II, and you see that the majority of people in government at that time were veterans of that war, and they were people who had to struggle through those sacrifices, had to go through all these issues, but they had a committed um, sort of vested interest within that government. Today, though, it seems that being in government today, whether being an elected official or being a highly appointed bureaucratic um, official, that that entails some type of celebrity, some type of high income, some type of uh, uh, personal benefit rather than servitude to the state, servitude mm. to the society being like the ultimate of citizenry. And so we, we, don't, we don't prioritize our issues. We don't prioritize what the functions of each level of government can be. And we lose sight of what it means to be an actual servant of the public trust rather mm. than what we see today. Yeah, Mike, that's a really it's a really nuanced and and complicated way of thinking about this and I'm glad you called and 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 said all those things. Paul Sabin, I wonder what your reaction is to what Mike's talking about here. Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that's crucial, <clears throat> a crucial point in, in trying to think about what, what is the meaning of public service and, and the role of government. And that's really, uh, you know, the struggle that, uh, that my writing has, uh, you know, centered, centered around. I mean, I think there is a you know, long history going back to the founding of, of the country of, of, uh, 
public you know, elected officials using their service and government to private ends uh, as opposed to the public uh, good, so that that's in some ways in, uh, has been inherent to our uh, process. Uh, the question is, um, two questions is, one, one, how do we improve that so that there's more public service going on and less private uh, interest? Uh, and then I think that there also is, uh, I guess, unfortunately, maybe a, a need for, I guess how to, how to put this, uh, uh, an understanding of the, and this this is less about the issue of people serving their own personal interests, but uh, a, a, a need for an understanding of the, the nature of compromise and uh, uh, sort of the flawed, flawed but necessary government. I think I think that we need that maybe that that liberals need to kind of kind of wrestle with that about how we we uh, uh, the government's not going to be perfect. It's going to make these mistakes. We should criticize those mistakes, but we also have to sort of vocally support. Uh, the government even because it's going to inevitably it, it, there's no way to have a perfect government. Um, and I think that there have been times uh, where the, the public interest uh, community sort of outside of government uh, has been able to maintain a, a sort of more pure uh, perspective uh, on the government. And that has then led them to pursue strategies that uh, are less oriented towards uh, kind of getting the government to be able to actually do things. Uh, and so I guess we live in a, in a fallen, you know, compromised world and, and we need uh, to kind of think about how, how do we muddle through? How do we do our best? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, Mike, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Mitchell in Farmington Hills. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen, for having me on your show. Uh-huh. Um, I think that, well, with what our nation went through in um, four years ago with uh, Donald Trump, um, I mean, I do believe on our government, but because Donald Trump um, tarnished our nation in so many ways that people don't even realize of um, that he sort of used, yet he had all this government and yet he kind of um, tarnished it by using money that he wasn't supposed to or using money and and just keeping it for himself and and like doing it secretly and yet it showed him showed us that um, that he'd tarnished our nation and yet he used our his power of um, of presidency due to the the uh, on January sixth with our state cap with our um, state capital. And yet now that people still believe in him, uh, and yet um, that the Democrats are trying to fix, and Joe Biden is trying to fix uh, our nation and help save it to go back to what it once was before Donald Trump ruined it. Yeah. Uh, You know, the the influence of Trump and his presidency on this question is really an interesting I think uh, question to, to to think about, and again, this is not a, this is not about liberals um, doing things that 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 compromise trust in government. It's about a guy who calls himself a conservative, at least. I mean, I'm not sure if conservatives would say they might accept that. Um, Paul Sabin, I wonder what you make of the Trump effect on on all of this and how it fits into this longer narrative uh, that that you lay out in the book. Yeah. Well, that's a great question and and very interesting one to explore. So, so the public interest movement that I write about was founded, you know, really between 1968 and 1972, which was, you know, the, the first term of uh, Nixon's presidency, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a very uh, tumultuous uh, time uh, with the Vietnam War and sort of the latter part of the civil, civil rights movement, and uh, um, there was a lot of uh, uh, use of litigation to try to block things that you know, these these uh, legal organizations were founded in some ways to sue the Nixon administration, and uh, and then they continued their role going forward uh, as more permanent part of the uh, American political landscape. And I think that if you go to the look at the Trump presidency, it's very interesting. So if you, you know, we can be critical of some of the ways in which the public interest uh, litigation is uh, problematic, some things we've touched on, um, but you also can see uh, the very active uh, role that uh, legal organizations played uh, during the Trump presidency uh, on uh, immigration issues, environmental issues, uh, government transparency, uh, the ACLU, the budget, you know, exploded in terms of the donations and its activity. And that was true across the board for uh, these uh, external uh, legal uh, organizations. 
And uh, so, th- so they were really invigorated uh, to play this role of citizens uh, challenging a government that was, in their, you know, in, in my view too, uh, and, and in their view, you know, doing ha- having some terrible ideas of things that, that should be done and, and acting uh, in corrupt ways. Uh, so, so it really underscores, I guess, the balance that I'm trying to emphasize, where you know we still need these uh, these tools and the, these these organizations. Uh, we just have to figure out, you know, how do, how do we balance them with uh, also the ability to get things done. So that, that, that's, that's the dilemma and the challenge. But I think the Trump presidency you know, really underscored uh, the importance of uh, citizen organizations in, uh, in, in American you know, political life. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Paul Sabin of Yale, whose new book is Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. I want to continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. I have a number of Twitter comments still to get to. If you want to join us on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. We'll hear from Anthony in Southwest Detroit next. Uh, We'll also get to a number of the Twitter comments that we have, uh, and we'll talk a little more with Paul Sabin about his book. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Paul Sabin, professor of history at Yale and author of a book called Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well, what you think about the power of government to improve American lives through big legislation. Is that something you still believe in? Is that something you believe is possible? Or are you skeptical of the power of government to do that? Do you think that government is compromised in the ways that it might actually improve uh, our lives in this country? Uh, You can join us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and leave comments there. Uh, let's go back to the phones here with Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Stephen. Um, I, I'm just uh, having tr- trouble myself with the ideological framework of liberalism. To, to be honest, you know, I just don't really see in the, the Democrats that are in power today, I don't see much liberal you know, ideology in them except, you know, uh, LGBT and reproductive rights for sure that that's liberal but i'm not really seeing uh liberal ideals in them and i i really just i don't think it accurately captures what we've been going through for the last 20 30 years which many have described as a reign of neoliberalism which you know many have said is kind of more oriented towards private market solutions and i do think we see a lot of people you know i don't know if you'd call them liberal progressive or moderate you know uh like let's take gretchen wimmer for example debbie stabenow liberal progressive or moderate and because i think progressive i think it did mean something maybe five mm-hmm. ten years ago when uh john conyers was in there but i'm not so sure progressive means a whole lot different anymore than liberal today but uh you know you see uh quote liberals pushing public private partnerships mm-hmm. so I, I really just think that the ideological framework's not correct, especially when you look at the security state, surveillance state, the foreign policy, and that uh, well, quote, but, liberals. But you know, Anthony, let me yeah. let me ask you let me ask you a question. I mean, if you think of some of the legislation that we're talking about here, Build Back Better or Green New Deal, those come from the Democratic politicians. Some of the Democratic politicians well, you're talking about, uh, do you not consider those progressive? legislation ideas, legislative ideas? Well, I understand the Green New Deal was created by the Green Party more than a decade ago. So, but the uh, Green Party doesn't could, have any members in Congress, and so the well, reason just, it's in front of Congress is because of the I Democrats. Just, <laughs> I just don't think that it would probably look the same as what the Green Party proposed 10 years ago, so I think the name usage is a little duplicitous on the Democrats' behalf. And when it comes to Build Back Better, that phrase has been in existence for over a decade, too. It was created by the World Economic Forum. And, you know, we have the neoliberal leaders of Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, all using it. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, Anthony, I think that's a really that's a really 
important point to, to raise is, is how we think of these things and what category, I guess, that we assign to the people who who are, are pushing them or, or, or proposing them. Uh, Paul Saban, I guess the question to you is, is this part of the problem as well, that, that it has become harder to define what is liberal or progressive because you have so many other influences, uh, especially inside the Democratic Party, that take people to, to different spaces. And I'm not just talking about someone like Joe Manchin, who is clearly uh, a conservative Democrat, but but as he points out, Anthony points out, you know, our our own um, senior Democratic senator, Debbie Stabenow, our, our Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, you know, they they play in in a collaborative space, I guess you'd say, with with conservatives. Does that also make it harder, I guess, for people to trust, especially progressives themselves, to trust what's what's going on? Well, there's a lot of complicated uh, questions <laughs> about this. I mean, I do think that uh, coming out of the 1960s and 70s, you do <clears throat> see a fragmentation of democratic politics and, and, and a lack of clarity about what uh, sort of liberals stand for. And part of that is sort of what I was describing, where you had this previous uh, liberal coalition that was sort of a, a big state uh, coalition, big government coalition, that then uh, as being uh, criticized, rightly, uh, on many cases uh, for, uh, and uh, a, a kind of a, a, a new sort of issue-based, uh, um, issue-by-issue uh, women's rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, you know, um, uh, environmental issues, a whole variety of different efforts to try to pressure that state administrative state. So you see a sort of a fragmentation and complexity of that, um, and it does make it a little diff- more difficult. I mean, I, I do, I think the, um, and, and one consequence of that, I think, and this, just the general sorting out of uh, politics in our country is that uh, increasingly we uh, live in in our own uh, we live in, in bubbles and uh, segmented areas. Are, and uh, I think the, the one of the challenges is trying to figure out like where we where liberals can find some common ground to get some things done. Uh, and one of the consequences of uh, the specialization that happened uh, after uh, the 1970s. Uh, is that uh, you have external interest groups that uh, that have very high uh, expectations and a kind of an ideal version of what they think should happen. Um, government doesn't usually doesn't produce ideal versions, um, and I think one of the challenges liberals have are facing right now is is how to find uh, compromise mm-hmm. on good good enough things, uh, things that will be better than what we had before. And uh, I, you know I think some of what the you know the caller was uh, mentioning, you know, it reflects some of that gap between the, the ideal of what we want to have happen and then kind of how do we create something positive uh, and better uh, through the in- institutions that, that, that exist. And I think the Build Back Better uh, case is an interesting one. Uh, we can, you know, there are a lot of complexities uh, to it. Um, but I, I'm struck by, uh, by the fact that there was a, a proposal uh, last summer for, you know, I think it was $1.7 trillion in spending, including, you know, uh, five or $600 billion in climate spending. Um, and, uh, and the Democrats, uh, you know, have been unable, uh, and I think this comes from both sides, uh, to come around a compromise uh, of some kind. Uh, that would be better than uh, than nothing, <laughs> and uh, it, you know the, the the idea that somehow the liberals are going to leave on the table the possibility of spending six hundred billion dollars to mm-hmm. try to uh, address climate issues uh, is astonishing to me. But it, it is uh, uh, where we are in in this gap between uh, these different visions of, of what's possible and and what you know what should be done. Yeah. So so I also want to drill down just a little more on that point. I mean. So if if we had Debbie Stabenow here uh, talking in, with us in this conversation, she would point to some things that she would say are quite progressive that have they, and, and quite large that they've gotten done in Washington. Of course, the Affordable Care Act, which, uh, which was passed uh, at the beginning of the Obama presidency, but also the infrastructure bill that was just passed at the beginning of, of the Biden uh, presidency. And, and I think what she'd say is, we can't get everything we want. Those bills didn't perhaps go as far as everybody would have wanted them to go, but they are they are monumental reforms uh, to to the status quo, and they they are the kind of thing that that the kind of things that are possible in the current political 
in, in environment. So I, I think they would say that, uh, you know, in some ways they're winning uh, the, the, these these arguments and these struggles, that they are still ca- capable of getting things like that passed. How would you how would you answer that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think I, I would generally share uh, a lot of that view. Just uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that one of the issues that ha- has happened is that, um, you know, prior to the 2020 election, there was a real sense of uh, tremendous momentum on the liberal side and, 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 a, and a hope that there was going to be a sweep uh, in the Senate and there's going to be a, a dominant liberal coalition would be established uh, uh, in throwing you know, Trump and the GOP you know, out of office. And that, 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 that didn't happen. Uh, you know, we ended up with a 50-50 uh, Senate. Uh, but I think that uh, there's still sort of a desire for the 50-50 Senate to act as if it was a you know, 60-40 Senate or something like that. Uh, and uh, it's just not possible. Uh, and uh, I think that, um, you know, so, so trying to uh, figure out how do we, you know, as, as, you know how do liberals uh, build from where they're at to get, to think about it more as a process and, and a long-term, uh, long-term journey as opposed mm-hmm. to immediately uh, solving everything. Um, so how, how, I think liberals need to think a little bit more about the longer-term process of building uh, building power and uh, you know, winning other Senate seats uh, so that then a larger agenda can be accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the loss of a few key seats uh, really had a tremendous impact on, uh, on what was possible. Yeah. And, and at the same time, Paul, we're seeing this kind of rebirth of – uh, 60s style activism, citizen activism with movements like Black Lives Matter and the urgency that they bring to the, the political discussion, but also to the, the, the thinking about policy. And, and here I'm thinking of, uh, you know, specifically about the, the police reform uh, movement and, and decarceration. Um, I mean, that's really important energy for liberals and the Democratic Party, um, they're, they're less likely to, to settle for these incremental, I guess, wins. And, and you can argue about whether they're really incremental or not. But I think they would say that they're incremental and that what we really need is, is you know, more substantive change. So there's this tension, I guess, that, uh, that Democratic lawmakers in, in particular have to, have to negotiate. Uh, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I think there is a tremendous uh, amount of reform energy uh, around very you know, important issues like uh, police reform. Uh, and I, th- I think that it has not necessarily always, uh, you know, being uh, channeled into uh, strategies for comp- accomplishing its vision or necessarily rhetorical strategies that, that will, will work as effectively as hoped. Uh, a very, very complicated issue. Uh, um, uh, but, you know, I, I certainly agree, uh, you know, with, with your description of that, that there's been a tremendous civic citizen energy around this, uh, but it's been harder to translate into uh, institutional structures um, you know, because, it's, it, because it's complicated. I, I think the, um, there's a sort of an, a, an abolition movement related to the police uh, that's running up against uh, 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 concerns about uh, safety uh, and, try, and trying to figure out how to, how to create an institutional balance there um, where the police, you know, there's police reform uh, that is a, a addressing the issues uh, that are being uh, rightly signaled out, um, but also not taking into consideration, um, you know, concerns that, 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 that people have. Um, you know, not, not my not my primary area, but I mm-hmm. think that there uh, you know there are uh, 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 kind of analogies or similarities uh, in, in pattern you know, patterns cr- across these issues that that are worth exploring. Yeah, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, Paul, but I want to give you a chance to talk about things that you think could be done to restore faith in these big government uh, programs and 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 ideas, things that the liberals and progressives could do. What can we do? To make people believe again. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that it goes back to one of the things that I said earlier, which is, uh, you know, we need we need to sort part, and it's part of the goal of my book is we need to have a more sort of mature attitude towards uh, government, uh, in which we recognize it as a flawed but necessary institution, uh, and I think that that would uh, allow us to sort of express our frustrations, as say, with the FDA or the you know, CDC around some of the COVID-related things, but also seeing how you know those are essential institutions uh, to support and to uh, to to defend. 
um, and also reform. And so that's the balance that we're, we're trying to strive for. I mean, I think if I were going to emphasize a couple of uh, points looking back at this longer history, you know, one is the importance of local and state government. And, uh, and I think that the liberals coming out of the 60s and 70s grew overly enamored with federal solutions. Uh, they, had a, they had a window of opportunity with a sympathetic federal judiciary and sympathetic, uh, you know, Democratic Congress for a time. Uh, and they came to see, you know, th- going to Washington and solving things at the national level was how things were going to get done. Um, and it, it really led a lot of you know, talented people not to pursue careers in uh, local and state government um, and sort of trying to build up from the bottom. And, and if you look at the, you know, the, the conservative strategy, uh, whether it's the school boards or the state legislatures, uh, you know, that, that, that really has been the path that's been uh, been followed. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think the other yeah, so I, we we could talk more about a lot of these different <laughs> issues, but I think that um, trying to find, uh, I guess, a, a, a balanced approach to some of these, recognizing the problems that were rightly identified, but but kind of not being so purist to um, to not be able to kind of proceed proceed to to trying things and be. I guess I'm looking for a kind of prag- pragmatism, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Paul Sabin. Professor of History at Yale and author of Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. It was really, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Congressman Andy Levin about unions and his new labor bill allowing congressional staff to unionize and the right to collective bargaining. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.